Travis Wingfield. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. I know there's a lot riding on it, but it's all psychological. Just got to stay in a positive frame of mind. You are Locked On Dolphin, your daily podcast on the Miami Dolphin, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. All right, Miami! What's up, Dolphins fans, and welcome into the Thursday, March the 29th edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and I'm here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, we are joined by a very special guest who will give us some insight into the Dolphins' decision-making this offseason, from the Jay Ajayi trade last year to the Jarvis Landry trade this year, Ryan Tannehill's leadership qualities, all of that and much, much more from Henry Hodgson from NFL Media. He'll be joining the show here in a minute, but first, before any of that, I have to remind you guys... Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and leave us a review. Tell us what you think of the show. Give us a nice little five-star rating there. Give me a follow on Twitter at NFL and follow the show at LockedOnFins. And check out the number one rated blog in the Locked On Network, LockedOnDolphins.com for your daily written Dolphins content needs. And last but not least, check out the other Locked On Sports family of podcasts like the Locked On Heat podcast and Locked On Magic podcast for all the local coverage of your favorite NBA teams. And before we get our guest on here real quick, just want to tell you guys about him a little bit. I sent him a message on Twitter asking him to come on the podcast and he could not have been more kind and gracious in accepting that offer. So let's go ahead and get to that interview right now with Henry Hodgson from NFL Media. That's another Miami Dolphins. And I am joined now by the Vice President of International Marketing and Fan Development for the NFL. He's also the homepage editor and director of programming at NFL.com. And fortunately for us, he's a huge Dolphins fan. Henry Hodgson. Henry, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Travis. It's great to be here. Yeah, of course. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to kind of get, you know, get a little bit of information from you in terms of what the Dolphins are doing this offseason. There's a lot of uh, kind of ambiguity around the team and kind of uncertainty about what they're doing. So I figured you'd be a good resource to kind of go ahead and dip into and, and ask you some questions about that. Sure. Yeah, no, looking forward to it. I certainly agree with you that it's the time of year that the, uh, the media sort of sharpens their pencils and, and likes to talk about the Dolphins. Um, and uh, I think probably they've been scared by some of the things that have happened in the past in Miami and, and uh, kind of loading up to uh, to take some pot shots. And I think probably, you know, a lot of them aren't, aren't necessarily as deserved as, as they all think they are. Yeah, and I even I even uh, drew comparisons back to the 2013 offseason when they went all in for Mike Wallace. They brought back Brian Hartline, all these moves they made. Right. And the, all the articles were just positive about the Dolphins. So we'll see what happens with that. But enough of all that. The, you know, naysaying and everything. I wanted to ask you first, Henry, where your background as a Dolphins fan came from? Because as you mentioned off air before the podcast here, uh, I had a fellow Brit on the podcast earlier, a huge Dolphins fan as well. So kind of tell me about how you became a Dolphins fan growing up overseas. Yeah, you referred to, to Simon Clancy and, and Simon and I are uh, of the same vintage, I think. Um, we grew up in sort of early 80s in the UK um, and football first came on TV um, in the UK around that time and in, in the early 80s. Um, and at that point, there were there were four TV channels, TV stations, um, and a new one had just launched the originally named Channel 4, the fourth one. Uh, and they um, decided to to put American football on, I think, honestly, just probably to, to sort of fill out their, um, their, their programming schedule. Um, and as part of that, uh, you know, when the NFL came on, what they hadn't, they sort of lucked into the idea that on a Sunday night, they would show the best game from the week before. Um, and it was really up against nothing. It was up against uh, some religious programming, sort of <laughs> antiques roadshow, nothing that, that most people would want to watch. And so all of a sudden, and I think obviously back at that time where 
there was a, a lot fewer options for people to be to be entertained with with literally four TV channels. The whole country would sit down and more, anyone who had the TV on probably was watching watching the NFL on a Sunday evening. Uh, and my dad had actually lived in the U.S. briefly um, in the 70s uh, when the Dolphins were, you know, the, the Shula era was was at its most successful. And so kind of knew a little bit about football. And I think probably um, like the Dolphins a lot, he always says that um, Paul Warfield's his favorite player of all time. So that sort of did him. Uh, and but but when it came on TV, it was literally the start of the Marino era, and uh, and every like I said, they would show the best game from the week before, and it seemed like one in every two of those games involved the Dolphins and a shootout, and so a lot of people in the UK sort of gravitated to to the Dolphins as a favorite team, and even if you look now, and, and part of my role is sort of developing that international audience. If you look now, the Dolphins remain one of the most popular teams in the UK. In part because there's that older fan base, you know, my my era of of Dolphins fans, and then you know they've had kids and and passed the the fandom down to to their kids in the UK as well. Yeah, offense definitely sells, and uh, hopefully we haven't uh, skipped a generation with two decades of futility <laughs> here the last couple of years with the Dolphins. But uh, in, as far as your professional career, Henry, how did you get involved in covering the NFL and get into NFL media? Yeah, I um I so so I really did fall in love with the sport. I fell pretty hard and. Um, Aged, I guess, about 16 in school, we were asked to um, go and do some work experience. It was something, you know, we were set a task, go and find yourself a job for, for two weeks in the summer. Uh, and I think a bunch of other, my sort of peers went off and did other things, whatever. And I wrote to the NFL, they just opened an office in London, I think, mostly for um, for uh, consumer products, merchandise, sales, but, you know, a little bit of marketing and other things. Uh, and, and obviously at that time, they were playing the American Bowl preseason games. And I just wrote to them and said, hey, can I come and do some work for you? This was 94, I think. Um, and uh, they um, replied and said, yeah, sure, come along. Uh, help us out. They were actually playing an American Bowl game, uh, preseason game between the Giants and Chargers in Berlin. So they sent me to Berlin and I worked with the PR staff of the NFL there and, and did various things and kind of got to know some people. Um, at that time, I was, you know, 16, 17 years old, somewhere around there. And um, and then I went back and worked for them. A lot of people in the UK will take some time out between high school and, and college. So I went and worked for the London Monarchs, which was an NFL Europe team at that time. Yeah. Um, and uh, and worked in PR for them. And then, you know, at that point, I, I made enough connections and, and continued working for them in university holiday break, you know, all those kind of things. And then eventually after I finished in school, um, did a couple other jobs, but um, but you know I made enough connections, and, and in 2003 I started working for the NFL full time in London. That's oh, really cool. It's cool to see that contingency come over from you know other cultures and other parts of the world because we actually have one of the writer at LockedOnDolphins.com is English. His name is Kadeem Simmons. He writes for us about once a week, so that's really cool that you know it seems to get more more and more popular and more and more involved overseas. And obviously you're kind of spearheading that that movement over there. But let's go let's go ahead and talk a little bit about your daily life back here in Los Angeles. And, you know, you're on campus daily at the NFL Network, and you're in the ultimate melting pot of NFL fans around that building, I'm sure. Now, the national media we talked about at the top of the show is killing the Dolphins currently. ESPN, <laughs> they brand the Dolphins 32nd in, the, in, their, in their power rankings, which is obviously worst in the league. So is that the general sentiment you get from around the network, and how do you defend that distinction of the Dolphins on a day-to-day -day basis? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said at the top, I think this time of year, uh, I think people have probably just been burned by exactly to your point. You know, four four years ago, whatever, the you know the Dolphins were the the, the off season Super Bowl champions for several years in a row, and obviously that didn't necessarily turn into on field success. So I think people probably just had a note in their calendar for when it, when it came to March, let's start killing the Dolphins <laughs> for whatever they do. And I actually think some of the moves are kind of the antithesis of what they were doing in the years that they were winning these so-called off-season championships and not performing in-season. You know, they haven't made those big free agent splashes that, that maybe look good on paper but didn't necessarily work out so well when it came to, to making you know putting the players in the locker room and, and trying to make them successful on the field. Um, so, you know, the, I definitely hear the same thing here. Oh, look, you know, what, are, what are the Dolphins doing? What are their plans? What, you know, what are they trying to put together? When I look at it, it does feel like um, Adam Gase probably, on reflection, um, you know, regrets what happened in year one of his tenure and taking the team to the, to the playoffs because although it was short-term success, it really slowed down his opportunity to put his own stamp on the team and bring his own players in. And I think probably some of the moves, you know, he wouldn't have probably made the moves originally if he'd been with the club. And equally, he probably would have fast-forwarded some of this if they hadn't had the success in year one that they did. And therefore, you know, it was hard to justify after taking the team to the playoffs that he would have made some of these moves he's made all in one spot at this time. Yeah, the frustrating part to me, Henry, is the fact that you have these guys like Jermon Bushra, Lawrence Timmons, Mike Pouncey, and Julius Thomas, who, when they were on the Dolphins, were killed in the national media, and now they move on from those players, and suddenly those players are good again. So it just seems like they can't possibly win. But again, he is Henry Hodgson from NFL Media on the Lockdown Dolphins podcast here at Wingfield NFL at Lockdown Fins. And again, you're on the Locked On Dolphins podcast with Henry Hodgson from NFL Media. And Henry, you spent some time around the team and, and are fairly plugged into the team and uh, around some specific players in general. I, mean, I keep hearing about how Miami needs to pursue, you know, Baker Mayfield because of his bravado or the leadership qualities that he offers. Now, Ryan Tannehill, on the other hand, is labeled a mild mannered guy, but I've seen him fired up on many occasions. So do you think that Tannehill is a capable leader? And is he someone that can inspire those around him and get better performances out of those players around him? Yeah, I mean, I, I personally, I think he, he probably can be that guy. I think pe- you know, people, what people are looking for when they say exactly those words, fired up and leader, they're looking for a guy that shouts and screams on the sidelines and, you know, is emotional. And we see that you know, from Tom Brady, you used to see that from Peyton Manning from time to time. But, I mean, you look at an Aaron Rodgers. I, don't think, I think if you train the camera on him throughout a game, you're not going to see him throwing a fit and shouting at his teammates. And I don't think anyone's questioning his leadership. So, you know, again, it goes back to the point I was making before. I think people, you know, Tannehill is very, you know, firmly in people's um, bullseye in terms of being a target uh, when when the national media is talking about the Dolphins. I I don't think that you necessarily have to be that kind of gesticulating, you know, guy on the sidelines shouting at people. I think you can lead in other ways. And I think Tannehill started to do that um, in Gates' first season in Miami. And obviously then that went off track. I, I suspect he'll be able to come back next year and, and probably pick up where he left from, especially you know if he gets the chance to, to win this job in training camp with a little bit more competition than maybe they've put in his way um, in the past. And I think that may be you know, one of the things that his teammates are looking for is, you know, has he really had to, to win this job and compete for it? You know, it's funny because I... 
earlier this last season, they were talking about this play on a Thursday night game where Matt Ryan was telling his guys to get F and set. And it was this big thing about how much command he had over his team. I, I pulled up some old Dolphins games, as I am one to do, <laughs> over the course of the <laughs> offseason. And there was a play where Ryan Tannehill said, let's go, get set, B.A., talking about Brandon Albert. So it's kind of funny how the narrative gets shifted despite the fact that there's not really tangible evidence out there. So with that yeah, in mind... I, sorry, just sorry to interrupt you, Travis. Go but ahead. Yeah, I, do think, I think that's the deal, is that you know, a lot of the time, you know, the, the, the national media has a, a, a storyline, a narrative that they want around a team and they'll, they'll fit things to, to make that come true. And, and I think, you know, the Dolphins are not a team that the national media focuses on a whole lot. And so when they do, they want to make sure that it fits the narrative that they have with the team. And unfortunately, the only way that you can really turn that around is have sustained success and kind of flip the flip the thinking of, of the national media. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, 10, 12 clubs that really get a lot of focus. And, and you know, those turnover, I guess, as, as the sustained success in cities. But otherwise... The, the story about the Dolphins or any number of these other clubs is probably, you know, six to eight months old. And it just happens to be, right, this is the, the last time I thought about this team. I thought this and therefore it's easy to carry it over. Uh, and, and, and I wouldn't say that that's specific to the Dolphins. It's just frustrating for us as fans yeah. to see that maybe there is something more at play and it's not just a, uh, a kind of straightforward, you know, life's the same. It reminds me when I got into an Uber last summer on, on vacation and I was wearing a Dolphins hat and the, dr- the driver was giving me crap about the Dolphins being a bad team. I was like, they went to the playoffs last year. Like, get, like give us a little bit of a break. But you know, talking about Tannehill and Baker Mayfield, I'm going to put your feet to the fire here real quick for a second. Do you put any any truth into that? Do you know any if there's any stock in that interest for Baker Mayfield? I, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there's interest, but... And, and I would put stock in the fact that they are interested in him. But you, you know, every team does their due diligence on on as many players as they possibly could when when they're looking at where they where they're picking. So I think they'd be remiss not to do everything they could do to to work out um, whether they need or who this guy is and and whether he would fit with their team. And it seems like they've maybe come to a conclusion that the answer is, yeah, they, he probably would do. But I don't think that's necessarily a reflection of where they currently stand on, on Ryan Tannehill. And equally, they'd be crazy not to because Ryan Tannehill's coming off, you know, one or two, depending on how you look at it, injuries and hasn't played in a long time. And, and you know, they would not be doing their jobs if they weren't looking at the quarterbacks that were available in the draft this year in case one of them lands in their lap to be able to say, why wouldn't we bring in a guy to either compete or if, if Tannehill, you know, for whatever reason, whether it's knee-related or other, uh, isn't able to go the, the full 16 games. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it also doesn't hurt you to do the due, the due diligence, easy for me to say, uh, when you consider the fact that, I mean, Buffalo and New York figured to possibly pick both in the top five, they could be playing against this guy twice a year. So You're exactly right. Yeah. So it does not exactly. hurt to get to know the guy at all. But i got to get down some more nitty-gritty here for you, Henry, and ask you a question about some of the quote-unquote bad locker room bad locker room presences. And I was curious if you could tell us any of the factors that went into the Jay and Jarvis Landry trades and kind of just some of the behind-the-scenes there. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't know that I can necessarily get into specifics, but I do know that, you know, Certainly, uh, on, on both of those guys, there were issues that, that um, the team or the, the coaching staff had with them in terms of um, whether they were being great teammates, whether they were being um, you know, really locked in on, on what their roles were on the club. Um, and, uh, and I think that that ultimately, you know, 
if, if that happens, you want to see that those players are willing to address the issues and improve. And it didn't look like that was happening. Uh, and from the sounds of things, you know, Gase, again, because he wanted to stamp his, his authority on this team, said, look, enough is enough. Um, if they can't do this, then I need to, to ship them out. And that's why you certainly saw Ajayi move. And, and I know that the rumors around, you know, that Jarvis Landry was made available at the same time. And obviously, in reflection, maybe the Dolphins would have got a better haul for him if they had traded him then. Um, you know, but those, those things certainly were, were very real. Um, and I think, I think happened very quickly. Um, it, it wasn't a sort of long-term plan. I think it was, okay, I've had enough. We need to move on. I think it's safe to say some of that venom comes from the fact that Landry kind of got, you know, lost in the shuffle because they paid some guys that maybe weren't necessarily deserving of the big contracts, and now you're letting your homegrown talent go. So the Dolphins are stuck in this place where, you know, we talked about it earlier with them paying free agents way too much and making the big splashes. Well, now they're in a position where they can start developing their own talent because they have drafted well the last couple of years and getting guys that have played well on the rookie contract. So hopefully they can kind of you know, spin that narrative back in the opposite direction and start keeping their own guys and building through the draft. And you talked about, yeah. go ahead. The, the key to that, the key to that though, will be um, Stephen Ross sort of maintaining uh, his belief in in the leadership group, or at least in the coaching staff. I think the last thing this team needs is to to be back on the treadmill of okay, well, we got a you know, new front office, and then a year later, a new coaching staff, and just keep on that track because that's that's not the road to success constant changing i think you just have to say look we're going through a process we are making changes and we may have to live i know no one wants to say rebuilding but we may may have to live with some some bad seasons if we believe that we have the structure in place to as you say to to draft good players and and then to develop our own players and you can you can't do is just give up on that yeah exactly you can't you can always point back to a lot of coaches in their in their first or second years didn't have great records i remember jason garrett was on the hot seat after his second year and then he blew up and had a big third year so you just never know what's going to happen but you know adam adam gaze when he got hired in miami he was the hot coordinator name he was the big time name and if you get back into that hamster wheel like you mentioned you're going back into a group of you know five six seven other teams that are also pursuing coaches so are you going to get that crack at the best guy again right now with Miami and their national perception I don't think that's the case so speaking of Adam Gase you know despite being a 500 coach that that, you know he's 16 and 16 and he ended Miami's eight-year playoff drought it just seems like he's public enemy number one on Twitter probably not the best source for my information but you know (laughs) that's where we are but you hear the organization particularly Stephen Ross like you mentioned he just heaps effusive praise on Adam Gase so do you kind of Find yourself on either side of that? Are you down the middle? Like, what is your overall opinion of Adam Gaze through 32 games? Uh, I mean, I'll be honest, when, when uh, exactly to the point you just made, when he was hired, I wasn't necessarily 100%, 100% behind that hiring because the, you know, the hot coordinator prior to that was Joe Philbin. Yeah. And the hot <laughs> coordinator prior to that was Cam Cameron. Yeah. So it was, it was tough to, to really like uh, to hitch my wagon to, uh, to, to Adam Gase originally because, you know, I, I guess I'd been burned and I don't think it was necessarily so much about Adam Gase as it was about the, the hot offensive coordinator. I think even Tony Sperano probably maybe fell into that category as well to some extent. Um, but I, what I, I was impressed with, with, I'm impressed with by him and by how honest he is. I spent a bit of time actually, it sort of seems ironic now, but with Jarvis Landry immediately after Gates had been hired and he was very impressed in his sort of initial meeting with, with Gates and, and, um, and, you know, really said that he was someone that he could relate to, that the players could relate to. Um, and that, uh, that, you know, that the, the, the 
that he felt like the team would get behind. And I guess, you know, again, that's probably, you know, in, in comparison with the guy that came before, uh, it wouldn't have been too difficult to, to have found someone that, that players would relate to better. Um, but, uh, but so, yeah, I was, I was impressed with his first season. I think, I don't definitely don't put the blame on, I, I realize it's him and he's had to be the guy who stood up in front of the media and said, you know, these are moves that I want to make. But as I said at the top, I think he probably had some of these moves in mind, not necessarily the specific personnel that he moved, moved beyond. But I think stamping his authority, getting his type of players in the building, um, it doesn't surprise me that he went, he went about it the way he did. And I don't think you can kill him for it because I, I think we need to give him another year, another two years to be able to really say, okay, this is my team. These are the players that I wanted. And then if he, if he swims, great. If he sinks, then, you know, then that's the moment that you've got to say, okay, well, perhaps the Dolphins should, should get back on that, that, that hamster wheel. Yeah, and I, I'm encouraged by sort of his, I suppose, moment of mea culpa in terms of the offensive line because, you know, going into last year, they approached the 2017 season with a, a less than desirable group of offensive guards, and now they come in here and they replace, you know, the left guard position is you couldn't have done better than they did with Josh Sitton. You get Dan Kilgore, center guy that has been playing better in, recently in his career compared to Mike Pouncey on the down, on the down part of the, his career. So I'm encouraged by the fact that he seems to be kind of learning from his mistakes and making those corrections going forward. Yeah, no doubt, and that you know that's the position. If 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 Tannehill comes back and is available for training OTAs and training camps and whatever, that's really going to be the key is is keeping him out of trouble because I think um, you know it, it it will be hard uh, for him with his knee. Uh, at least to begin with, and I know that he's had you know as much time as he possibly could do to rehab it. But it really it doesn't count until you're on the field and you're playing in 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 you know you can get hit uh, and there's something at stake. Uh, and I I know that you know players certainly find it difficult to to trust their their knees, especially that they can do the things that they used to be able to do. So keeping the the clutter away from from uh, of defensive players around his feet will I think be a, a a key aspect to the Dolphins' success at least in the passing game this season. One hundred percent. Not to mention the fact that they got guys that can win at the line of scrimmage very quickly in their routes and get the ball out quickly. So yeah, Henry, it's very nice to have someone from the national media on our side. And lastly, can you do me just a, a favor and tell the heroes on the Around the NFL podcast to ease up on the Dolphins a little bit? <laughs> I'll certainly have a word with them. I think a lot of that is uh, I'm good friends with with. Dan and Mark and Greg and, and Wes and I think a lot of that is aimed at me um, you know, Dan, Dan's a big Jets fan yeah, and yeah. a good friend of mine and we'll go back and forth on a Sunday and, and obviously he's able to get the last word in so I will have a word but I don't think that I can necessarily make any guarantees on, on the Dolphins behalf there I think we I think as we said uh, at the beginning of this you know the, the best way to turn the narrative around is, is to win to win consistently, uh, and, and I will shut those guys up. Yeah, 100%. And Jets and Dolphins fans are not made to be friends on Sundays, so that's <laughs> totally understandable from Dan there. Again, he is Henry Hodgson. He's at NFL UK Hank on Twitter. Henry, so, so grateful to have you come on the show. Thank you again so much. Yeah, thank you, Travis. Great to talk to you, and uh, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Again, Henry Hodgson from NFL Media, a fantastic resource there for us on the podcast and, and sticking up for Dolphins fans amongst the national media. So big thanks to him for coming on the show. Guys, follow him on Twitter at NFL UK Hank. And we're going to come right back on the Lockdown Dolphins podcast at Wingfield NFL at Lockdown Fins to kind of give you guys a brief on the rest of the week and what's ahead next week. 
And we've got one more segment left to get to in terms of the offensive preview for pre-draft, I suppose. We'll do it again in the summertime, going over the entire roster, and we'll do a, you know, a full week worth of offense, full week worth of defense. Next week, we'll talk about the defense again, pre-draft, like I said again. But if you guys are looking for more content right now, more Miami Dolphins content, LockedOnDolphins.com is cranking out all kinds of stuff right now. I have a piece up there right now talking about third down, the money down. I talked about it on the podcast yesterday, an insight into the Dolphins' improvements from 20, or I guess I should say, regression from 2016 to 2017 on third down their principles in terms of offensive philosophy on third and short and kind of what they did with Ryan Tannehill attacking deep down the field you can check that out right now lockdowndolphins.com it's called the money down an analytics study and then also Kadeem Simmons our writer we talked about earlier on the show over from England he posted up a story from one of Adam Gaze's media availabilities talking to NBC Sports as Adam Gaze continues to make the rounds on the national media and on the radio spot. So he went ahead and gave you guys some written detail from that interview. We've got Frank Gore's role in the offense talking about his ability on short yardage and in the red zone. We've got the defensive tackle prospect primer from Kevin Dern up. And of course, all the daily news from Jason Harina getting on LockedOnDolphins.com. So check all that stuff out, guys. And that is going to do it for this edition of the Lockdown Dolphins podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review. Check out the other Lockdown Sports podcasts for all your local and national coverage of your favorite teams. Follow me on Twitter at NFL and follow the show at Lockdown Fins. Follow our flagship show at Lockdown NFL both on Facebook and Twitter. And check out the number one rated blog in the Lockdown Network, LockdownDolphins.com. You guys have yourself a great night. I'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Lockdown Dolphins podcast, your daily dose for Miami Dolphins football.